Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34, called the message, Responding to Jesus' Authority Correctly. So we're in this New Testament book. If you're not too familiar with your Bible, it really just breaks into two divisions. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is essentially a big prediction about what will happen when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes. And the New Testament is essentially Jesus coming. And then after Jesus comes, it ends up all the way into what's going to happen in the future. We're in a New Testament book called the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew is written by an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And the reason he wrote it was to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. All the predictions in the Old Testament, he's telling the Jews, hey, Jesus is this guy. He is the one. And this is written probably about 25 or so, 30 years after the cross, after the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then Matthew comes and he writes this account to prove Jesus is the Messiah. Now, within that, he gives a couple of chapters here and again to the subject of miracles. And everybody, if they know anything about Jesus, they know that he did miracles, right? And so Matthew has recorded miracles from an eyewitness standpoint. Also, John records them, Luke and Mark. They also record different miracles. And what they're doing is they're proving that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so we're in a section of miracles, and that's the point, that Jesus has authority over all things, that he's God in the flesh. And last week we saw that Jesus has authority over sickness. And really the main point was is Jesus is completely sovereign in control over all sickness, right? It's not a matter of his ability. It's a matter of his will. If God wills to heal you, he heals you. If God wills to deliver you from something, he delivers you, right? That was the point last week, Jesus' authority over sickness. Now, this week, we continue on and we see Jesus' authority over three things, over people, over nature, and over Satan. How did people respond to Jesus' authority, right? Does everybody, did everybody then and does everybody now just submit to Jesus' authority? No, not at all. Unfortunately, there's some pretty bad examples in the scripture. And that's what we're going to do today is we're going to learn from some bad examples, right? Four ways not to follow Jesus Christ. Some bad examples. Thinking about it as a church guy, you know, I was like, let's learn for some bad examples. And so I looked up bad church signs, right? Like what not to do uh, on your church sign. And here's a few that I found. Bad church signs. Anybody ever seen any of those? Anybody ever seen, you know, I always love to see it when it's, well, no, I don't love to see it. I was going to be sarcastic. I'm not going to. Okay. <laughs> Uh, never mind. I found some bad examples, and because we can learn from bad examples, right? Here's what we should not do as Calvary Chapel, Mason City. Let's not put these things on our sign. Uh, the first one says, we love hurting people. <laughs> uh, you know, like, we love to hurt. No, we love hurting people. Come on in here. You're hurting? Come in. Uh, the second one I came across, hell, one way out. One way in, no way out. And then it says, welcome. <laughs> it's not very welcoming. Uh, here, this one I got a kick out of. Tired of being a loser? Turn to God. <laughs> these are real church signs. Bad examples, right? Try these four-letter words. Grace, love, and pray. <laughs> Bad examples, right? This is, we don't want to do this as a church, right? 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad somebody picked up on that one. I know it's early in the morning. Well, it's not that early. Do you ever, th- here's, here's a good one. Do you ever think where you'll spend entirety? <laughs> uh, here's another one. Does life stink? We have a pew for you. <laughs> How about this one? Lent, not just for belly buttons. <laughs> yeah. All right, bad examples, right? Here's a lot of things that we can learn uh, not to do. And that's what we're going to do in the message today. We're going to learn from some bad examples. This is not how you follow Jesus, starting at verse 18. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Heavenly Father, help us to study your word today through the words of a mere man, through the foolishness of preaching. Speak to us supernaturally. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18, when Jesus saw great multitudes, last time he had just, he'd done the miracles, all these people that were demon-possessed and sick were brought to him, and Jesus cast out all these demons with a word. He had just taught the Sermon on the Mount before that. Large crowds were gathering around Jesus. And look at, here's one of the reasons I like Jesus in verse 18. Great multitudes about him, and he says, I'm going to get away. A lot of phony baloney preachers would sit there and like try to work the crowd and get autographs and start an email list and do all this other stuff, you know, and capitalize on the crowds. But Jesus was always like thinning the crowd. Jesus was always interested in quality instead of quantity. And so verse 2, here comes, the bad, here comes a couple of bad examples. First of all, in verses 19 and 20, I'm sorry, I said verse 2, it's number 2. Here in verse 19 through 20, we see one bad example uh, the scribe's rash response. And then in verse 21 and 22, we see a guy that essentially is making excuses. We see a disciple's double-minded response. Verse 19, then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, a scribe, for those of you that don't know, these were Jewish scholars, highly esteemed experts in reading, interpreting, and teaching the scriptures. So they were, you know, significant in the Jewish culture. These people were highly esteemed, highly regarded. This guy, no doubt, had lots of time in his room with all of his scrolls, studying, probably a large degree of comfort in this guy's life. And he probably heard the Sermon on the Mount. He probably saw the miracles. He probably saw the healings. And he sees this rabbi, Jesus, this teacher, gaining a lot of popularity. And so he comes to him and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? I'll just do whatever. Anywhere you take me. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. My guys remember that song? How about the one? I surrender all. Really? <laughs> He's got this, like, declaration of faith that he just comes out with. Now, what's the motive behind it? It's kind of hard to tell. I mean, it doesn't say directly what the motive is. But we can gain a lot of insight by looking at Jesus' response to him. Jesus says something that's kind of bizarre. You'd think that Jesus would say, you'll follow me wherever I go? Awesome. Welcome aboard. Let's baptize you. Let's get you involved. But here's what he says. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? So if we think about this, Jesus understands the motives of your heart, of this guy's heart. 
it starts to give us an inkling of kind of what maybe is going on in this guy's heart, right? He, the illustration is pretty simple. These animals have homes. They have places, at, you know, where they lay down at night, and, and it's kind of like comfort in a way. Like the animal has a place to be comfortable. And, and he says animals have these sort of things, but he says the son of man is homeless. In other words, hey, Mr. Scribe, with your scrolls and your comfort and your prestige and your room and your, you know, uh, your life that you've got going, you're looking for significance, well, I'm homeless. Uh, you want to follow me? Because life is not about comfort when you're following Jesus Christ. Now, listen, does God want you to be comfortable? Well, that's an interesting question because he blesses you with a roof over your head. You've got a lot of comforts in life and all this stuff like that. But in this day and age, when you followed Jesus, what it meant was, you know, you were going around traveling, getting the word of God out, right? And that came before, where are we going to stay, you know? Where are we going to sleep tonight? Which hotel are we going to get? Let me pull up Trivago and see, you know, as we're going down the road, where the next, you know, whatever it is. That wasn't the priority. Now, the principle that you have to understand today is following Jesus in 2021, the principle is still the same. It's not always a life based on ease and comfort. Now, any of you, I guarantee if you've ever done anything to serve the Lord, maybe within a week or two after beginning that, or two, maybe three, you've started to figure out quickly that the enemy hates you, <laughs> you know? And things are not comfortable, right? So Jesus shuts this guy down. Mr. Scribe, you think it's going to be a life full of Bible study, significance, fame, and comfort? That's wrong. You make great claims, but you don't understand what's involved. Jesus was calling this rash responder to a life of follow-through, right? This is the sort of person that knows a lot about the scriptures. They think that church is about coming and just being comfortable and, hey, we're on the winning team. We're with Jesus. We know the end of the story. We watch the videos. We're getting entertained. You know, we've got all kinds of Bibles. We've got more. We've got monogrammed Bibles. We've got more Bibles than we know what to do with. But Jesus says, that's great. You think you're all in? How about when it comes down to parting with your comforts for the sake of fulfilling the Great Commission, right? You know how a lot of, here's how we know a lot of Christians don't understand this, because Barna, again, has done studies and shows that it's remarkably low that the majority of Christians just don't even ever lead anybody else to Christ. So this shows that the average Christian in America doesn't really get it when it comes to what Jesus is calling them to do. Jesus is calling you, yes, to make coffee, yes, to be a greeter, yes, to be a pastor, but he's calling people to make disciples, right? And it shows that there's a lot of people that make claims just like this guy. Hey, I will follow you wherever you will go. Really? And that's what he's saying to this guy, and he shuts him down. Look at the next example. That's the first bad example. Emotional responses with no follow-through. That's the first one. Emotional improperly motivated responses to the gospel, but no follow-through. Now here comes the second example, a disciple's double-minded response, verse 21. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Whoa, Jesus. You read through this before, right? What kind of a response is that? 
Well, notice, first of all, it says that he's a disciple. So this is disciple in the broad sense. The word disciple is used many times in the scriptures. It's not only about the 12. It's about people that are, it's about the 12. It's about the multitudes as a whole. It's people that in some way or another have decided to kind of tag along. They kind of come to church. They're hanging on for whatever reason they are. You know, people that are just kind of like loosely affiliated, right? And so he comes up to Jesus and says, let me first go bury my father. Now, this is not a request to go to his dad's funeral. How do we know that? In Jewish culture at this time, when a guy died, they buried him the same day, right? It's not like they had embalming fluid and all these other different things, but it was a cultural thing that if, he, if he, the guy died, he was put in the ground that day, and it was the oldest son's responsibility to take care of all this stuff. So how can we say that he wasn't asking to go to his dad's funeral? Well, he's probably not hanging around listening to the Sermon on the Mount and all this other stuff, most likely if his dad had died that day, right? Now, Scholars suggest a whole different reason, you know, a bunch of different reasons that could be. Um, there is some evidence to say that it's kind of like, a, um, like an expression to say, let me go bury my father. It's essentially saying, let me hang out at home till my dad dies and so I can get the inheritance, right? That's a lot of commentators go that way. Some think that he just wants to put his family obligations, you know, it's a serious thing. You're the oldest son. It's a serious thing to handle your dad's estate in this culture. In fact, if you didn't do it correctly, shame upon the whole family. Very shame and honor culture, you know, in a sense with the Jews, right? So some people think that might be it. Here's what we know for sure. Whether it's just that he wants to get the inheritance first or he wants to fulfill a familial duty, whatever it is, the operative word in there is first, Notice that word and go ahead and circle it in your Bible if you like to circle words in your Bible, the word first. That's what Jesus has a problem with. When Jesus calls you to follow him and anything comes first before him, you're not doing it right. I'm not doing it right. If I am the sort of Christian that says, look, I hear that you're calling me to serve you, Jesus. You're calling me to be the husband, the pastor of the home. You're calling me to do whatever it is he's calling. If, if I say, look, Jesus, let me hang out and get some, uh, let me get my money straight first. You know, once I'm in a better position financially, then I can start being more regular in church. You know what? Then I can respond to the call to, to make disciples of all nations. I can start becoming a discipler, you know what I mean when Jesus says, you know, go into all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's called the Great Commission. We're supposed to teach. As Christians, he's called the church to go into all, everywhere, and teach people about Jesus. But if I say to Jesus, you know, I understand that you're saying that to me. I've read the, I've read the Bible, but first, let me go do something else, right? That's not okay with Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Here's the thing about being double-minded. You just get to become miserable. You know what I mean? The most miserable people you meet are the ones that are wrestling between following Jesus and following themselves. You know, aren't they? They've got too much of the world in them to be comfortable in church, really. They're kind of squirming in church, you know. And they've got too much church in them to be comfortable fully in the world. They're the most miserable people, the double-minded people. What he's saying is, Jesus, I'll follow you. I hear you calling, but I want to do it on my own terms. I'll just do it later. 
is making excuses. This, these two pictures of Jesus, don't they really make us scan our own response to his authority? This makes me think about, you know, am I, am I just giving lip service to all this stuff? Would I be a pastor if, like, we had to worry about getting bombed or something like they do in Iraq or something like that? Would you be coming to church today if you could possibly get turned over to the government and, like, beaten for what you're doing? I just bring that stuff up because that sort of persecution is actually coming to the United States. I don't know if you know how many churches have been burned in Canada. Canada. You know, I don't know. This Jesus is calling us out. He's calling me out. What do you think Christianity is about? He's calling people to follow him. It's not always about comfort. Comfort doesn't come first. It might get difficult to follow through on your commitments to him. And you can't have divided allegiance. You can't be saying, look, I've got some familial obligation that comes before you, Jesus. You know that your commitments to your mother, to your father, to your own kids, do you understand that no commitment is to come before your commitment to Jesus Christ? Right? Jesus is to be number one. Now, Jesus tells you to love your mother and father and respect them and to serve your children and to provide for your family. Don't get me wrong, but as far as who's the king of your heart, the king of your heart is to be the king of kings, right? And it's, I'm not trying to be condemning and hardcore. It's just the best thing for you because any other thing that's divided allegiance, you're just going to be miserable, right? You're going to waver back and forth and you won't, you won't get anywhere. Yeah, I remember one time when I was young, I was trying to run with my buddies. We used to, oh, that's not a good story. Well, we were running for a reason. And what I did was I jumped over this fence, but I hesitated right before I did it. And guys, Oh, you know what I mean? Half one side and half the other. You know, it's not a very good position to be in. Now, Jesus' authority over people. He has the authority to call people to follow him. And make no mistake about it, he's called you. If you're here today, you can know it for sure that that calling has progressed even a little bit further, right? He has called you. And I would just plead with you. I'd plead with you today to stop wrestling with Jesus just stop wrestling with him. Stop making excuses. Be willing to put it all aside for Jesus Christ. There's nothing better. Trust me. Okay, going on further. Now Jesus' authority over nature, verse 23. When he, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Or maybe he said it like this. Why are you fearful, you of little faith? Could have. He was sleeping right before. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and sea obey him? Great tempest to great calm, right? Now, 
he's getting into the boat and the disciples are following him. Now, this is a different type of disciple. This is referring to the 12. These are the ones that have enough sense to come out from the multitude and get into the boat, right? These are the real deal. Getting out of the crowds, coming away with Jesus, and getting into the boat with him. And this great tempest comes up. Now, do you know what a tempest is? Who's used that word? Oh, boy, the other day it was quite a tempest. But you can. You can expand your vocabulary right now. Next time it storms, tempest. Well, it's a storm, if you hadn't gathered yet. And it's typical on the Sea of Galilee. Actually, the Sea of Galilee, this area, it's really an interesting area. The lake is, it's really just a lake. It's 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, but it is 150 feet deep. And on both sides, um, you know, there are mountains surrounding it. It's 680 feet below sea level. And so, no joke, it can go from sunny days, summer breeze makes me feel fine, blowing through the jasmine in my mind. It can go from that to the worst storm you've ever seen in your life. And here's the thing. These are fishermen. They would have known this. They would have seen these before. So that I'd say that so you understand this storm was not like any other storm. This was Duracho or Dorito. What was it? That's the one. I went and saw the aftermath of it. I was like, holy cow, these trees are just, you know, wow, this was, this was more than that. Now, the boat that they were in, they found, uh, archaeologists, you know, they found these boats. Uh, you can look it up online. Look up the disciples' fishing boat. You can see pictures of one. They're not very big, maybe 25 feet. And, uh, you know, but we're talking 12-foot waves. These guys, no wonder they're like, we're going to die. And these are fishermen. Isn't it interesting, though, what Jesus is doing during this storm? He's asleep. What? Now, this is neat because you see the humanity of Jesus. Jesus Christ is fully God and he's fully man. He's not 50% God, 50% man. He's fully God, fully man. When God became flesh, he added humanity to his deity. And here we see a picture of actually both his divinity and his humanity. He's exhausted from ministry. By the way, Jesus got tired doing ministry. It wasn't just something where he's like, I gotta see if I can fit some ministry in here. I'll make a schedule. Oh, maybe in the next three weeks I can come and probably hand out some food at the food. Bay. Oh, I don't know. I'm getting tired just thinking about it. No, Jesus exhausted himself for you, for you, for me. Now, his humanity. He's so tired, he's sleeping through 12-foot Doritos. Derecho? He, this guy is tired, right? So you see his humanity, and you also see his divinity, because he, has, he understands he can sleep during this. He understands nothing's going to happen. He gets it. And the disciples, they didn't understand that, right? They didn't know who was in the boat with them. You have to give them credit. Their response, they say, Lord, save us. They believe he can save them. You have to give them credit for that. So you're like, oh, men of great faith. Lord, save us. We're perishing. <laughs> Isn't that weird how humans can be, I believe God can do things, but at the same time I can be fearful. Isn't that weird? 
But Jesus' response tells you that it doesn't need to be like that. He rebukes them for being like that. He says, you of little faith. Are you kidding me? Little faith? Who wouldn't be scared of 12-foot waves? But he says, look, why are you fearful? Don't you know me? That might be a real good question for you today. You're in a situation and you're spending too much time, you're getting tired of it, thinking about something that's bringing fear into your mind. You're spending too much time doing this. Let this text ask you, why are you so fearful? Is it because you don't know Jesus? Is it because he's not in your boat? Maybe Jesus isn't in your boat. If he's not in your boat, you have a reason to be terrified. One rebuke to the disciples and the next one to the wind. And at his word, it goes from this massive storm to completely calm. Uh, lakes don't calm down that fast. That are 150 foot deep with 12 foot waves on them. Milliseconds before. Do you notice this? That they were right in the will of God? Didn't, I mean, the other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus said Let's get in the boat. We're going over the lake. They are right in the will of God. Sometimes we get confused. We say, you know, I've been going to church. I've been reading the Bible. I've been praying. But I don't understand why there's storms that keep coming into my life. Do you understand that being in the will of God, directly in the will of God, storms come into your life, even though you're directly in the will of God? Right? You know, guys, we know enough to come out away from the multitudes and to be serious about following Jesus and to get in the boat with him. But we have pretty weak faith when the storms come in, some of us. Listen, if you're more afraid of the storms of life, if you have more fear of storms than you do fear of God, do you understand theology? Do you understand who God is? He wants you to. He wants you to understand him to the point to where you know, maybe you would be sleeping next to Jesus in the boat. Looks like a good time for a nap. If Jesus is taking a nap, it looks like a good time for a nap. If you have more fear of the storm than fear of the Lord, there's a problem. Talking to myself, too. Bad example, doubting Jesus' power and care for us. You know, in Mark's gospel, it says, don't you care that we're perishing? That's how he recorded it. Don't you care when the storms of life come in, don't we say that sometimes to God? God, don't you care about me? I can't believe all the stuff I'm going through. God, don't you care about me? Well, God always cares about you. He brings storms into your life. So you'll learn. You'll learn to trust him. You'll learn to trust him more. Jesus' authority now over Satan, number three, our last point. So the sea is calm, the lake is calm, and as they're floating towards the shore, the lights of the surrounding city, and something terrifying is about to happen. Verse 28, when he had come to the other side, the country of the Gergesenes, Luke, Mark call it the Gadarenes, similar town right in that same area. There met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way, and suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God. 
Have you come to here to torment us before the time in Luke's account? Um, Matthew records two uh, guys possessed. Mark and Luke record one. Um, which is it? Well, they don't say only one. Matthew's recording two, and they are probably just drawing attention to the one that was more fierce than the other one. I like Mark's description of these demon-possessed men. They're living in the tombs. These are guys that have let demonic influence into their life, right? They've been messing around with the occult in some way or another, and they've turned themselves over to demonic possession. That's a big reality. Do you know, like in all kinds of different ancient writings, um, thousands of years back, years before Christ, demonic possession and the activity of demons is found in Eastern culture, all kinds of different cultures. What it is, is a person opens themselves to the demonic world um, through the occult in some way or another. I mean, today what it looks like is, you know, horoscopes, numerology, um, in all kinds of different ways you can open yourself to the demonic world, drugs, uh, tarot cards, all that different stuff. Um, <laughs> you ever listen to the song Highway to Hell? <laughs> The lyrics are like a satanic initiation. You ever listen to Murder Was the Case that they gave me? It's about how Snoop Dogg like gave his life to the, to the dark, like to the dark side and how he got all this power to become the, I mean, Hollywood's filled with it. That's no nobody everybody knows that. People open themselves up to demonic um, influence and demons come inhabit people. It causes all kinds of different stuff. Let me read in Mark um, the description and it's kind of interesting, the description of the demonic activity of these guys. Um, Mark chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, talking about um, one of these guys, he says, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. So the devil gave this guy like superhuman strength. Verse 4 of Mark chapter 5, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones, right? This brings pictures to mind of like people I know that have just went off the deep end of drugs. Like they get thrown. Everybody's like, just get away from me. The family kicks them out. They're in chains and shackles. It's like, just get out. They're living in like the worst place, you know? Your heart's breaking because you're... You know, your daughter, your friend, or your cousin, or whatever, are just like living at the bottom of the barrel. The drugs have sucked the life out of them. You know, they're getting uh, ravaged by the devil. They're filled with depression. They're cutting themselves. Tell me cutting yourself. Like, tell me that's not demonic, right? Tell me this stuff isn't demonic. Tell me the, tell me the enemy isn't at work, right, in this world. It's a lesson about Satan right here. This is what he loves to do to people. He loves to isolate them, to cause them to hurt themselves, to cause madness in their minds, right? He turns them into total cast-offs. Pretty eerie. Suddenly they cried out saying, what have you to do with Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time the time is referring to what's uh, listed in Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
there is a final judgment coming upon Satan and upon demons, right? Um, it says in the Gospel of Luke, they're saying, don't cast us into the abyss. The abyss is, in the Greek is the abusa. This is a place where it refers to in the book of Jude where demonic spirits are held until the time of Revelation 20 when this judgment comes and Satan and his demons are dealt with. But throughout this world, um, the Bible says that this is Satan's domain, right? The Bible says that this is Satan's domain. The Bible also, though, does teach that all demonic forces, they're fallen angels, by the way, demons, and they are ultimately under the sovereignty of God, right? And we'll see that here in this passage. Now, I want you to think about something interesting about salvation that we can learn here from these demons and from what they're saying to Jesus. They say, first of all, they call him the Son of God. Demons know that Jesus is who Jesus says he is, right? And they also say, have you come here to torment us before the time? So they also know that there's a judgment coming, right? So think about this. Their eschatology is straight. It's a big churchy word for saying the study of end times, right? Their end times is, you know, doctrine is on point. They know the judgment's coming, right? And they know Jesus is God. Now that describes a lot of people that think they are Christians today. They may know the Bible. They may know Jesus is God. But they're no different than these demons. See, if, if all it meant to be saved was you believe that Jesus existed, these demons would be saved, right? But they don't have the sort of faith that brings salvation. The sort of faith that brings salvation is the kind that submits to him and trusts in him for salvation as he is Lord of my life. I've given him the rightful place in my life. He bought my life on the cross. He is my Lord. And the message that Jesus saves sinners by grace through faith is my gospel. It means something to me, right? Like Paul says, my gospel. You've taken this in and you've said, look, I know I'm a sinner. I can't improve my situation, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And by grace through faith, I can believe in him and trust in him and receive everlasting life. And I'll go to heaven because of my faith in him and I surrender. He's Lord. That's the kind of faith that saves, right? How do you know you have the kind of faith that saves? It's simply you obey Jesus. Not perfectly, albeit but your heart and your affections have been changed. And you know, because you, one of the greatest ways that I always, you know, because I used to wrestle with, am I saved or not? I don't know yet. You know, I used to wrestle with it a little bit. I say, I can't stop thinking about Jesus. <laughs> he changes your heart. When you have saving faith, you know that because you can't get him off your mind. You can't get Jesus off your mind when you're a Christian. You can't. Unless, of course, you become really, really calloused. But she can deal with that too. Now, these guys have just been ravaged by the enemy. Run out of town, they live in a cemetery. Verse 30 says, Now a good way off from them there were a herd of many swine feeding, so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. It's a demon voice right there. Permit us to go. <laughs> if I did it like that, would you? Mike would like that. Like that sounds sounds pretty good. Cast us into the abyss. <laughs> no, I don't do that. Absolutely bizarre situation. Look at they're begging Jesus. They're praying to Jesus. If you're going to cast us out, send us into these pigs over here. Mark adds that there were about two thousand of them. Now they would rather be cast into swine than be disembodied. 
tells you something else about the demonic world. And he said to them, verse 32, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place to the sea and perished in the water. Archaeologists figure they, they think they found this place. This city right there has a very steep decline. Bizarre situation, right? Jesus casts these demons out. They go into this pig farm, and all of these pigs then suddenly run down the bank, and they die in the ocean. This is the first case of deviled ham. <laughs> no, nothing? Thanks, Papa Chuck. Stole that one from Chuck Smith. There's no reason to fear the devil or demonic forces. You see how they respond at Jesus' word? You know, when a person gets saved, you might be worried if you say, well, I'm not saved. I could be possessed by the devil. You could be. Um, but good news, when you get saved, you're not possessed by the devil anymore. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean the demons don't harass you, right, as a Christian. That's one thing you have to understand as a disciple of Christ. You have to understand how to deal with demonic warfare in your life. And, you know, you learn over time. I don't know everything about it. But I've certainly been to the school of hard knocks for it, and other people here have too. Now, look what happens here. This is a bad example coming, and this is tragic. Verse 33, then those who kept them, talking about the pigs, fled and went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to lead their region. It was going pretty well, right? Here were these guys that have been in demonic oppression, possession, cast-offs, creatures, creations of God that he loves, given over to the devil, right? And these people, they come out and they ask Jesus to leave. Why would they do that? Well, people speculate it's like because, you know, they were more, you know, they're mad about the loss of the pig revenue. They were more interested in commerce than conversion. The deal is, is they were probably so in darkness that when they saw the light and power and authority of Jesus Christ in their area, they said, you know what? I've seen what happened to these cast-offs and the light has been shined upon me and I don't like the way it feels, right? So get out of here, Jesus. There are people that, that respond to Jesus' power and authority like that. They see that Jesus sets people free and that he shines the light on your sin and darkness and they think, you know what? I got to get out of here because <laughs> the light's being shined. Right on you. You know, it reminds me of the story of this girl, April. Her dad was incredibly busy. He was wealthy. His daughter was addicted to speed, needles. He had failed to give her the time and love that she needed. And But what he did, you know, because she was an adult eventually and couldn't make anything happen in her life, and so he let her live in his pool house and tucked away out of sight, total cast off. She got further and further off the deep end. Her sister tried to visit and 
keep some sort of regular contact with her, but she would walk in and she'd see April bleeding, cutting herself, needles sticking out of her arms, completely trashed the place, broken mirrors, broken furniture all over the place, feces on the floor. She would just do her best, you know, to keep in contact with her sister. So her family decides to do an intervention. And uh, what came out of it, long story short, was this whole family was sick, right? Dad has a cocaine problem, sleeping with women, worshiping his job more than he's taking care of his family, putting work first before his daughter. And come to find out, everybody got mad, you know, when the light was shined in. It was easier to take the one that's really off the deep end and just tuck her away because the rest of us are managing. And it just kind of reminded me of this story, you know, of how get away, Jesus, because you bring the light in. You start to deal with these things, you know, where we've kind of tucked them away. We don't want to think about this sort of stuff. And so we want you to leave, Jesus, because you know what? If you start to address the issues in my daughter's life, that means you're going to start addressing the issues in my life. And I don't like this. Right? Tragic. You'd think they'd be out there being like, Jesus, you, you delivered these people? You have this kind of power? Why don't you come into our town and help more people? How do you respond to Jesus' authority? Are you like the scribe? You study, you like your study and your comforts, you make bold words, but you're really not interested in sacrificing uh, like a true disciple? Are you like the hesitant disciple, the double-minded guy, family obligations, financial desires, or something bigger leading you to make excuses instead of following Jesus? Are you like the true disciples that came away from the crowds, got into the boat, but in every time of storm, or trouble, you get fearful and you doubt the Lord's power and his goodness? Or maybe you're like these Gergesenes or Gadarenes, whichever you choose. You like things as they are, and you don't really want Jesus to come expose your darkness. You're more interested in making money than you are seeing the people around you get converted. These are four examples of how not to follow Jesus. <laughs> right? They're not as funny as those bad church signs. But I think they're very helpful. In conclusion, I want to say this. If Jesus wants you to follow him, and he does, how come he doesn't just force you to follow him? Have you ever wondered that? If Jesus wants everybody to be a Christian so much, why has he given us a choice? Like, why, why doesn't he just force us to be Christians? If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, there's been times where you wish that he just would. Will you just force me, Lord, to be like you and to follow you and to be, will you just make it happen, Lord? I, I look forward to heaven so much because that whole, like, rebellious, perverse nature, it won't be there anymore, you know? Like our worship will be undivided. Our hearts will be undivided. It'll just be like direct connection. You know, like I look forward to that day. 
Why doesn't he just force us to follow him? Well, it's because that he wants a relationship with you that comes from your heart. He wants you to serve him because he's worthy and because you know that he loves you. He wants your heart more than he wants your hands. He wants your hands, but he only wants your hands because he has your heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here today. I trust, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is dealing with us. I thank you, Father, that you want our hearts, Lord. I can't believe, Father, that you want me to follow you. Somebody like me. I'm so grateful to you, Lord. You've given us life, meaning, purpose, healing. Heavenly Father, I pray that you soften the hearts, Lord, of those who need it. Those that are arguing with you, making excuses. Those of us that just are not, just one foot in and one foot out, Lord. Those of us, Father, that have other priorities that are trumping you. Would you help us, Lord? We're tired of being, we're tired of straddling a fence. Tired of feeling torn, Lord. God, would you please help us? Would you help those of us, Lord, that possibly more concerned about making money than we are seeing people around us get delivered. We're not putting in the work in the right area. Yes, we're working to get the things that we think we need, but we're not putting work into the deliverance of others, sharing your gospel, bringing what truly matters. Heavenly Father, I think that some ways you're shaking our foundations in 2020 in this world and through this pandemic and through inflation and through all these different things and through um, turmoil, Lord, and I think you're stirring us up, Lord. Heavenly Father, help us now, Lord, those of us that need to just make a clean break with these other priorities and to put you, to allow you to have the rightful place in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you want to spend time with us. In Jesus' name, amen.